The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Please turn your Bible now to Ephesians chapter 5. We continue in our Ephesians series and come to the, the marriage portion of this very important text and the topic of submission tonight. In many circles in our culture, the idea of submission is considered profanity. Even many Christians shy away from the topic or try to explain it away somehow that it was just only culturally relevant in Paul's day. There's much confusion. And so to that extent, uh, Pastor Light and I hope to spend about five or six Sunday evenings with you in this portion of Ephesians to try to cover the important matters regarding marriage. Marriage in our day is under attack. Even many within our own congregation are under heavy strains. And we would seek clear biblical guidance from the Word of God as well as much practical application. We hope tonight, as we cover this important topic, to understand God's design for marriage, but also his design in, cre- in redemption to enable and empower people to offer loving submission within the important institution of marriage through the love of Christ. Let us read beginning in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. This is the holy and inspired word of God. Father, I pray that you might Minister to our minds and hearts. Give us insight. Lead us in understanding and in praise of the Lord Jesus Christ. Might we see him and him only. In his precious name we pray. Amen. During our first year of marriage, my wife Stacy and I signed up for ballroom dancing lessons at a local community college near where we were living in Houston. And we bought the various musical CDs of ballroom dance music and made sure we had the proper shoes and showed up for our first lesson, Eager to Learn. Now, in this group, we were easily the youngest couple taking lessons, and uh, we had a lot to prove, or at least I had a lot to prove. And uh, our instructor began to give us instruction on the steps, and we'd practice it, we'd listen to the music, and uh, we're very importantly trying to look impressive and not make fools of of ourselves. But I think it was probably by the second or third lesson, we were, it was clear that we were having trouble. 
You see, my, my wife, Stacy, had difficulty following my lead. I would want to go one way, and she would want to go another way. She'd either resist or steer us in another direction. And uh, I very self-righteously appealed to her that the instructor clearly said that the man is the one who leads. Well, she didn't hear me very well, and as we continued to try dancing, frustration mounted after repeated missteps, and I became angry. I was taking this very, very seriously. And uh, my light-hearted wife would only laugh at our missteps, which, of course, would only make me angrier in response. I'm sure that midway through the course, the instructor thought we needed marriage counseling. Where was John Light when he needed him then, right? Well, somehow we finished the course, and we've done very little ballroom dancing ever since. (laughs) There's for keeping the peace in the marriage. I believe that our experience reflects how many couples begin marriage. Submission does not come naturally to a woman when she marries her husband. And... I believe that young husbands are not quite as effective at leading as they would like to think that they are. Neither husband nor wife in those beginning years have much patience or empathy, only a a litany of expectations and demands that kind of go unspoken but just mount to the surface and result in much frustration. And as often as the case for a young couple... Both are blind and perhaps dismissive towards their own shortcomings and weaknesses. In our text, as we introduce the topic of marriage, Paul gives a command to wives to submit to their husbands as to the Lord. And he summarizes it at the end of the passage to respect their husbands. And I believe, biblically speaking, in from personal experience, that this command rubs against our fallen, independent human nature, as does the command we will address next week. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. These are difficult commands. These are impossible demands, apart from the rich grace of God found in Jesus Christ. And not only does our flesh resist this command, we live in a culture that is preaching at us and advocating only what is best for oneself, what is good for the individual, looking out for your own welfare. We need a new and a radical reorientation that can overwhelm our fallen nature and resist and go against our culture. That's only found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what we hope to do in the weeks to come is is unpack how the gospel helps us and enables us in marriages that are afflicted by by the curse. I've grown convinced in my going on 10 years of pastoral ministry and 15 years within marriage that There really is only one problem in marriage. Studies have been done. Counselors give reports. 
couples going through difficulty will attribute their problems to issues with money. Problems with the in-laws, career problems, maybe issues with communication, male and female not understanding one another. However, I I believe, at, at the risk of being overly simplistic, the one core problem in marriage is our own self-centeredness. We are naturally oriented towards pleasing and gratifying ourselves. And when two people get married, their two independent self-wills collide, and there's a wreck. And what you do with the wreckage makes all the difference in restoring and renewing a marriage built upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. I would contend that anyone who wants a good marriage must first look in the mirror, must first look at oneself, take a hard look at oneself to identify one's own flaws and weaknesses. Consider how many of us began our dating years. For those of us, that was not too long ago. For others, that may have been quite a time ago. We begin in our dating years looking for someone to meet our needs, looking for someone who's attractive, who looks right, who has the right social appeal, maybe their credentials or education or their earning potential. We're looking for someone who will meet my needs, who will make me feel good about myself or make me look good. As I've thought about that natural orientation, I've challenged people in our ministry, in our young adults ministry, in our home builders ministry, to turn that upside down. Might you consider whether you are dating or whether you are married, what would it mean for you, by the grace of God, to consider how you might be a blessing to someone else? Might you pray, God, God, use me to be a godly husband to a fine woman? Or how might I be a godly wife? to a man who would need me as his partner and helpmate in life? What would it look like for a young man pursuing a young woman so committed to her good and welfare that he wants God's best for her, even if that's not him? That there's a level of respect and love and submission that a woman wanting a young man blessed to bring much glory to God and blessing in his own life. I heard a story a year or so ago. Actually, I heard it and saw it on the internet uh, through Desiring God Ministries of a young couple who met in college and two Christians and were beginning to talk about marriage, so they're not officially engaged. And during their senior year, the man suffered a horrific car accident that left his mental faculties severely diminished. Although through rehab he was able to function, it was very, very clear that he would never hold a job and never be able to live independently. And during this whole time, the girlfriend helped care for him, helped his parents, and really wrestled over what their future would be. And as they determined whether or not he would be able to communicate and be in relationship with her, as they met certain milestones, decided to get engaged and to marry. And so this young woman took the plunge of marrying a man who likely would never provide for her, 
or protect her or serve her, who would, who would need her constantly. But by the grace of God, trusting that this would bring much glory to God. Here's an example of a young woman denying herself and submitting in a way that would be foreign to at least young women, although not dissimilar to older couples later in life. We need a radical infusion of God's grace to transform our own self-bent, our self-centered nature, to embrace the call to serve and submit to one another, as Pastor Light preached on weeks ago. As we approach this text, I'd like to tackle a number of important issues. What, what is the basis for the husband's authority that Paul is establishing? And then we want to consider what submission is and what it is not. And I'd like to get practical with you and offer you some application to consider. It seems that Paul grounds the husband's authority in marriage based upon two foundations, in creation and redemption. He says that wives are to submit to their husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife. First of all, this authority is God-given. It is by God's design. And as Paul elaborates elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 11 and in 1 Timothy 2, the order of creation in God's plan was to create the man first and the woman out of the man. Thus, Paul establishes this is a permanent and universal arrangement, not something that is culturally constrained and limited to that time period. Paul, uh, Adam's authority is confirmed to us, especially in Genesis 3, where God, walking in the garden, confronts the couple and calls the man to account, to take responsibility for the fall that he and his wife have now brought upon the whole human race. We believe from Genesis 1, 2, and 3 that men and women are equal in dignity, both bearing the image of God, and yet within marriage, there's a designated role, a designated headship of authority that God has established for our good and for his glory. Secondly, Paul establishes this authority in redemption, that wives submit to their husbands, for the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church. And here Paul moves further into helping us see that marriage is a picture of the gospel. All through Ephesians to, to this point, Paul has been expounding upon the glorious grace of the gospel. And here he gets practical with our most fundamental relationships. It wants us to see that marriage between a husband and a wife is a picture of the gospel, that it's a calling towards oneness and intimacy that God initially desired with his people in the garden that was tainted, tarnished by our sin, and God hopes to restore one day. Notice that the Bible begins with the marriage and ends with the marriage in the book of Revelation as Christ is wed now to his church. So marriage in this life is a picture of redemption, of one pursuing and providing, of serving and delighting in as a good husband should for 
for his wife. And so the wife is called to offer grateful submission just as the church is called to respond with submission and gratitude and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. It was no mystery in, uh, that in the first century, women were held a, a very little regard. Among the Jews and in the greater Greco-Roman culture, there was a famous prayer among the Jewish religious leaders where a Jewish man would say, Thank you, God, that I'm not a Gentile and that I'm not a woman. In Greco-Roman culture, women, wives, were considered little better than slaves, property. And yet, as we come to this topic here, we find Paul going back to creation to establish the dignity of women. And you see that Paul is not just preaching this. As you look at his life and his ministry in the likeness of Christ, both of whom who had female companions, both of whom considered women worthy of teaching and learning and serving and participating in the gospel mission, you see a beautiful thing of rubbing against the cultural norm of that day to restore women to their rightful role in creation and to restore marriage to its rightful place as a picture of union between God and his people and a glorious picture of the gospel that Christ has given to us. Now, I'd like to consider a couple of things. What submission is not, and then consider what submission is. I begin by saying submission is, first of all, not absolute, and it is not abuse. Now, Paul does say that at the end in verse 24, that our wives should submit in everything to their husbands. That everything is intended to mean that a wife cannot simply pick and choose what areas to submit to her husband about. This is not a cafeteria pick and choose arrangement. However, the whole passage begins with instruction to wives to submit to their husbands as to the Lord. Our submission to God alone is absolute. And a husband's misuse of authority, coercing his wife, manipulating her into something unlawful, immoral, or against God's will, is to be resisted by a God-fearing wife. A wife may, ne- may neither do what God forbids nor neglect what God requires, at the direction of her husband. Like Peter and John before the Jewish Sanhedrin, the wife must obey God, ultimately, rather than men. But not only is submission not absolute, it is also not abusive. It is very sad how, even in our supposed egalitarian age, There is much false understanding of submission, and in many so-called conservative churches, this passage is used to imply that submission requires a wife to be subservient, to to be under subjugation to her husband in the sense that the husband has the freedom to order her, to tell her what to do, what to wear how to look, where to go, what not to do, how to act, 
to essentially micromanage her, leaving her less than a servant or even a child. A couple in our church was meeting with my wife and I not too long ago, and the wife was telling us about her sister, married with children here in Lancaster County in another church, And her marriage could be described as nothing short of controlling and emotionally abusive. Her husband repeatedly thwarts any of her efforts to express herself, telling her how to wear her hair, what kind of makeup, and actually no makeup at all, any effort on her part to be expressive or to be an individual. And he will use false piety to shame and guilt her into something that he calls submission. She, this woman can't work out of the home. She, will not, she cannot handle the money, even though their financial situation is in dire straits. Any of her attempts to stand up to her husband are faced with retaliation, with days and weeks of emotional battering until she is left to merely whimper into subjugation. This couple, at her prompting, did undergo counseling years ago, where the pastor, after hearing their situation, promptly exhorted the wife to submit to her husband, to bear it, to endure it, with no counter-challenge other than a bland, pious, love-your-wife instruction. And so, feeling defeated, this hurting wife has given up and just living in accommodation like the poor subjects of North Korea. Friends, that is not submission. That is tyranny. And it flies in the face of anything that we would call biblical and loving and gospel-centered. In contrast to that negative example, let me offer you a positive image that I think is is a more accurate biblical picture You recall years ago, during President W. Bush's administration, he had a very sharp woman who was in charge of the national security. Condoleezza Rice also rose up to become Secretary of State during his second term, the traditionally held as the highest cabinet position. Ms. Rice is intelligent, competent, responsible, professional, and in many ways was the president's most trusted advisor. And her excellence makes him look very good. It seems to parallel with the image we get from Proverbs 31 of the woman of excellence who does many things well and is responsible and serves and is a blessing and her husband is revered in the community because of her godly example. My wife is my Condoleezza Rice. She is my my competent, responsible woman who manages my house, who takes care of our needs, who takes care of purchases and needs of the children, who relieves me to pursue my calling and vocation in the church. She makes me look better than I deserve. She is my subject matter expert. I need her counsel. I also need her correction. 
It is sad that insecure men, insecure husbands cannot take counsel or criticism from their wives because their identity is too fragile to be an assault upon the false and fantastical image they have floating in their head. I'm convinced that I am a better man today because my wife has learned to stand up to me, to challenge me. I have learned to receive criticism, something that was not easy for me in my earlier years of marriage. And my wife has also learned to soften the sharpness of her tongue to make her critiques more palatable and gracious. So what is submission? I would say that submission is the grateful respect that a wife renders to a husband as a legitimate authority that has been given by God for her provision, for her protection, and her good. It is her humble recognition that God has placed a husband over her in authority, but also placed her under him to support him. She is his helper, as Moses describes it in Genesis chapter 2. Why does that term, why is that used? Many scholars indicate that it doesn't mean the wife is a little helper like a child. It actually is indicative of the fact that the man needs help. Amen, sisters? That man needs help. And God, in his wisdom, will place a God-fearing wife to support a man in his calling and vocation and compliment him and help him towards the calling and purpose God has for their family. Submission is not keeping silent. It is not refusing to ever challenge a husband's opinions or positions. Rather, I believe submission requires a wife to speak lovingly, to confront issues, to offer biblical guidance. As I've talked with Pastor Light about this matter, he would say that in contrast to the issue of a very controlling husband, Many women in our culture and even our church face a bit of an opposite problem of husbands that are far too passive, far too resigning, far too abdicating their responsibilities to lead. And so for many women, there is a temptation to seize control, to take more responsibility, to assume command. And so submission for many women may mean to restrain that to hold back on that temptation to manage everything, and rather to lovingly challenge that husband to get engaged, to take responsibility, to weigh in on the matter at hand, to help her with the situation at home, with the finances and with the children. Submission does not allow a man to abdicate his authority. Rather, it helps lift a man in his proper role to lead as God would direct them. But how do you do this? How do you do it in a way that honors God and is a blessing to the marriage? Well, I want to offer a couple of things. These are my my ten hit list of ways that women can be poor at submission, 
or neglect it. Here's number one. When a, when a wife yields to impatiently demanding of her husband's time and energy and attention, rather than graciously asking. I don't know about you, but I find that I, I am more motivated to respond and serve when people ask me rather than demand of me. A second item, a woman bad-mouthing her husband behind his back. Bad-mouthing and cutting him down to his face. Or even worse, cutting him down and humiliating him in front of other people. A man can die a death of a thousand cuts from the sharp tongue of his wife. A third item of weakness that I've observed in women is frustrating her husband's attempts to lead and to initiate. Perhaps in her controlling, self-protecting nature, she resists any of his own efforts to lead and serve her. Number four, a lack of gratitude towards her husband's attempts to lead and to serve the family. Unthankfulness is a sin against God and crushes a man's spirit. Number five, dismissing a man's advice or his request without giving it thoughtful consideration. A man, ladies, feels respected when you consider his counsel, when you seek out his advice on an important matter. Number six, assuming the worst attributing to his motives rather than looking and seeking out the best. I believe that love, 1 Corinthians love, is giving another person the benefit of the doubt. Number seven, when a wife rejects her husband's advances for affection, may challenge wives rather than to make excuses to delay intimacy, to talk about the issues at hand, to address matters that need resolution and understanding in the marriage, and the hopes that you can find godly resolution and come again together to enjoy your union. Number eight, a wife that belittles her husband's dreams. When husbands are young, they have many dreams. And the wear and tear and frustrations of life begin to diminish those dreams. Now, there are some men who are dreamers that need to be brought down to reality. But there are other men who need to be encouraged to pursue their dreams with faith. Number nine, an overly critical attitude and spirit towards a husband's weaknesses and failings. I challenge wives to consider, is your critique driven by your care for him? Of truly wanting God's best for him, or is it really a matter of your own self-interest? Of wanting what is convenient for you? I'm afraid that there tends to be a trend for wives to be blind to their own self-righteous judgmentalism. Let me encourage you to take the log out of your own eye. And approach your husband with gentleness as you 
help him pluck his splinters out. And lastly, number 10, a poor approach to submission is when a wife tries to play Holy Spirit. When a wife wants to control or change a man rather than giving that role properly where it belongs, that God alone can change a man and yet uses a godly wife to come alongside him, to love him and challenge him and encourage him in that sometimes long and enduring process. There are other things that we could consider, but I I want to encourage wives practically to think tonight. Perhaps you make excuses for lack of submission. Well, if my husband would just love me more or love me better, then I would render submission to him. My challenge to that is to first recognize that no husband can love you the way you want to be loved. And the the opposite of that is for husbands, your wife cannot submit to you the way you long for submission. Only Christ can do that for you. Only Christ can love you and respect you and validate you in a way that even the best spouse in this life can only approximate. So even if you are married to a Nabal, like Abigail in the Old Testament, consider that Abigail did good to her husband as she brought gifts to who would become her true husband. And just as she brought gifts to David to protect Nabal, Wives, as you are trying to bless and serve your husband, you are ultimately submitting to your true husband, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because your husband is only a husband for this life. Christ is your husband for all eternity. So your call to submission ultimately is a call to submit to the Lord Jesus himself. Well, how else can we apply this passage I want to say a brief word to single women and to husbands before we wrap up. I want to challenge single women. Please do yourself a favor. Please do the pastoral staff a favor. Not only only marry in the Lord, but marry a man that you can submit to, that you can gladly submit to. And as you are meeting this man and getting to know him, And and think about this way. Any man that asks you to marry him is asking you to submit to him. You have every right to ask him back, well, who do you submit to? He needs to be able to demonstrate, not just in words, but in a clear track record, that he submits to Jesus Christ. That his faith, his character, and his track record demonstrate a man that is humble. A man that is responsible, a man that does what he says he is going to do. He's a man who is able to admit fault, confess sin, repent, and also show much grace and forgiveness to you as well. I'm convinced that any young couple is not really ready to get married until they've had some good fights 
not until they've had some conflict that needs godly resolution, do you really know what kind of person this is that you're marrying. And so confession and repentance, I believe, should be a part and parcel, the cycle of any good and godly marriage. How about for husbands? How do you apply this passage? How do you help your wife in her submission to you? I believe, men, it begins by first recognizing that you're a difficult man to submit to. You are a sinner. You don't love this woman the way you're supposed to love this woman. You have not protected and provided and pursued her the way Christ has. You are a flawed man. And I believe that any man who takes this passage seriously will recognize what a hard and daunting task that wife has been given. That she has been asked of God to submit to a very flawed man. And you should empathize with her. You should pray for her. You should do everything that you can in your own growth and godliness to make her submission that much easier and that much more joyful. There are those husbands who demand submission, who browbeat their wives, who guilt trip them, all in a grand contradiction to the gospel. And if submission is a gift, as I contend that it is, we need to consider the nature of a gift. You know, there are places in the world where one must give a gift to get a service. In Russia, Ukraine, other places, if you want the government or government worker to give you clearance, you have to bribe them. You have to give them some kind of gift. Here in the USA, there are people who demand gifts. We call them children. And a man who demands the gift of submission from his wife is a man-child who is so insecure that he can't handle not having control. He's a man that needs to man up and find his new identity in Christ, recognizing that his wife cannot validate him, cannot satisfy the needs of his heart, that only Christ can fulfill that. And he's free to love her and show her grace and receive that gift with gladness. You see, God the Father did not demand submission from the Son. The Son of God from eternity past gladly submitted to the will of his Father. That he came on a rescue mission that was dire and desperate and dangerous, costing him his, his life in great pain and sorrow. Jesus says in the Gospel of John how much he delighted to please his Father. It was his food to do his will. It was Jesus' mission, his passion, to make much of his Father. It says in Hebrews, it was the joy set before him that he endured the cross, scorning its shame. Jesus sought to bring glory to the Father by redeeming the elect. His was a call of sacrifice and a glorious duty. Yes, Jesus was subordinate to the Father in his role of submission. 
yet we fully believe that Jesus is fully God. In power, equal in power and in glory. And so Jesus was not indignified by his submission. Rather, he was glorified through the sacrificial call of service. Ladies, your call to submission is hard. It rubs against your flesh. It goes against the grain of our culture, this culture of me first. You're being called to submit to a flawed man. But let me remind you that submission in this life is training. It's practice and training for submission to your true husband the one that you will be married to for all eternity, the one who loved you and gave himself for you, and the one who ultimately is your model in submission and can enable you to die to self and render submission to your husband. Many of us love to watch expert dancers on the dance floor. The man demonstrating his strength and his skill, the woman putting on display her beauty and her elegance. Marriage is a beautiful and glorious dance that pleases God, that is meant to be put on display before a watching world, a spectacle, an amazement to a world in darkness that knows nothing of the oneness and intimacy that's intended for them, that's offered to them through the gospel of Jesus Christ. My wife and I are still not expert dancers, at least not on the dance floor. Perhaps in 10 years or so, when our children start getting married, we'll take up lessons again so that we look respectable at the wedding receptions. But I'm committed to a greater dance, improving the spectacle of what God is doing in my marriage. I think my wife would say I've improved as a leader and that she has certainly grown in her submission, blossoming under the ministry of the Word, appropriating the grace of God, something that's beautiful in His sight. Let me encourage you. Abide in Christ. Ladies, look to your true husband. Even as he calls you to submit in this life, relying upon His grace alone offered us in the gospel. Let us pray. Dear gracious God, our Father, we thank you that in Jesus Christ... We have all of our sufficiency. We have all the grace that we need for life and for godliness. And I pray for marriages that you would bring healing and strengthening, that you would bring growth, that you would bless the marriages in this congregation, those that exist and those that are in the future. And I pray that uh, this congregation more and more would be prepared for that great wedding day when we'll be wed to Christ for all eternity. We pray in his precious name. Amen.